first night in the Philippines, I'm praying for a line of about a hundred people and I'm just commanding them to be healed. And I'm not really even believing it because I'm asking the translator, like, are these people actually getting healed? And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on. Like, don't ask questions. Let's just keep praying. Like, there's lots of people to get through. <laughs> and this one guy, um, he couldn't see. Like, he could barely see, but he couldn't, you know, everything was blurry. And... Um, and so I prayed for him and he turned around and gave me the biggest smile and I grabbed his arm and I said, wait. I said, can you read that poster up in front there? And he read it to the translator, like through the translator, and he read it. Hello again, friends, and welcome to the show. On behalf of Disciple of City, I'm Todd Carlton, and this is the Toddcast. Thanks so much for listening, friends. And if you like what you hear and would like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to discipleacity.ca, finding the link to donate, and put DAC Toddcast in the message box. Disciple of City is a non-for-profit charitable organization. See everything we're doing on Facebook and Instagram, and also follow the Toddcast on Instagram to see posts and pictures of our guests. My guest today is originally from South Africa. He's currently living in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, and has flown out here just to be on this podcast. He has studied in Pretoria and Cape Town in SA, and he was director of the Quest at Christopher Lake Camp in Saskatchewan and has since joined E3 Ministries. Please welcome Sean Cruikshank. Wow, what an intro. <laughs> Hey. That's awesome. How's Thanks. it going, bro? Oh, it's so good. Yeah, it's really good to be here. Yeah. Finally. Thanks for coming out. Yeah, thank you for having me, man. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's good. You're not really out here just to be on the podcast. <laughs> I took advantage of why you're out here, but... Uh, uh, I, I couldn't keep a straight face. Like, <laughs> that's really cool. But, yeah. So yeah. What, what, what are you doing out here in, in Ontario right now? We just had a, a retreat with a project that we're doing with E3 Canada, and it's called Voice in the Wilderness. It is a project to finish the Great Commission in our lifetime, in a, in a nutshell. We do want to see the Great Commission finished in our lifetime. We believe it can be done. The amount of unreached, unengaged people groups that are left in the world are in the in the double figures, double digit figures, uh, we have the lists. We know where they are. Uh, we know what it takes to get there, and we believe at E three we have the tools to train people up and send them out. And so, is it uh, double digits? I, I was uh, under. I thought it was like a fifty four. Fifty four groups. Wow. And I'll put a caveat on there because we had a meeting last week with um, someone from finishing the task, and they say some of the groups in India are like they're 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 reached and they're engaged and then the church falls away or they revert back to the old religion and so those numbers are flexible but but it's very close so there's like in groups in india or china or villages that they would have sent someone into and then haven't heard from the church for a long time and they go back there and there's nothing happening so but it's pretty close yeah wow that's exciting it is. It's very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, for those, we've had E3 people on here before, yes. Jeremy Dorton and Brody and Curtis, Curtis and a whole bunch of people yeah. from E3. So it's that, that, that main mission is to reach the unreached or the people groups that have not heard the gospel before primarily. Yeah. Primarily. 
there is, you know, Matthew twenty four fourteen. Yeah, this this gospel of the kingdom will be preached uh, to the ends of the earth, all over the earth, and then the end will come. We believe that that hasn't that mandate hasn't yet been reached. We haven't reached the whole earth, and so we look at two groups: uh, unreached and unengaged. And that is like within a people group itself, less than five hundred people. That like if there's if there's five hundred people or less, we consider that a I'm sorry or more, we'll consider that because there's lots of sort of micro communities as well, and we don't know. So we're just going to go out and. Tick, tick off the boxes as we send out people and we partner with other missions organizations. And then um, we'll see what happens. Maybe maybe we go a level deeper and there's a group of small group in a village somewhere that only has like a hundred people yeah. and maybe they've never heard. And, but we'll find out about those as well as we go. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, Sean, South Africa, uh, tell, tell me about, uh, tell us about South Africa. Uh, were you did you grow up Christian over there? And when did you come to Canada? Okay. That's three questions. Three questions all in one. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's about yeah. South Africa. It is beautiful. And where so, in South Africa did so you grow up? I grew up? up in a small town called Palabora, which is in the northeastern part of the country. The place is now called um, Pumalanga. Uh, and um, it was a small town, about 35, 36,000 people. There was the world's biggest open pit copper mine was nearby, and so most people worked there. There was a phosphate mine as well, and that was the you know the backbone of the of the small city or small town. I loved it. It was out in the in the bush, as you call it. Um, we had elephants on the golf course, hippos on the seventeenth hole, like that you would have to tee off over. And there's a family of hippos there, and there was always gazelles and things on the golf course. So it can't be had, good for the fairway if elephants are walking uh, around. They, yeah, they would just come and you know hang out. Sometimes you would just have to wait, and you know the elephants would be there, and you just like look at them. Wouldn't your ball be bouncing all through well, there? You, you wouldn't want to hit when they're there, but. <laughs> <laughs> there was a, yeah, I mean, I just remember American tourists and like people used to come and play there because it was a world famous golf course. But um, we just couldn't understand why so many like people wanted to come and see these animals that we could just see all the time, lions, things like that. So it was pretty fun. It was nice to grow up there. Um, and South Africa is very beautiful. It's a wonderful country with very generous, loving people, very open. Uh, it has its you know issues like every other country. But the people are warm, and there's this thing called Ubuntu, which which I love, and I'm probably going to wreck it. But it, what it means is um, we we share what we have, and it's this kind of feeling of this sort of generosity, like we we can give and you know share what we have amongst each other when we have need, and I like that, you know. And uh, so when we came to Canada, oh, Christian household, my my folks were believers and we went to a church, small little Baptist church in, in, uh, and my mom played the piano, that kind of thing. And, uh, um, but my dad had some demons, I think you can put it that way, whether you take that metaphorically or literally, I don't know. And I didn't know at the time, but he was fighting some things within him and he wandered very far away. And that would happen when I was a teenager. And so I didn't have a male figure in my life. I rebelled and uh, just turned to my friends. It was at that age where my friends were becoming more important anyway. And so I just went along with them and did whatever they 
wanted to do. And so because he left or because you were just disengaged? He left and in South Africa. Yeah. Yeah. He left my mom and okay. moved to Johannesburg area and started working there and stuff. So I became angry at him and you know, things like that. So, yeah. yeah. So when did you, did you come to Canada with your mom? Oh, oh man. No, no, no. So I went overseas. I went to, I went to work in England to find myself like a idiot, 21 year old. And, uh, what I did, an interesting thing happened there. I, I, cause I knew about God. I said to God, I said, God, I want you to leave me alone. And I, I think I said the words I want Holy Spirit. I want you to leave me alone because I don't want to feel guilty about the things that I'm going to do. And I, and I remember the exact corner of this place. It was, it was in Mayfair in London, and I was working there at the time. And uh, and then I just did what I wanted to do: partying, girls, weed, alcohol, that kind of stuff. And I uh, didn't feel any guilt. Was love it, but I, what I did feel was empty, you know. And that happened for a, you know, I was there for about a year and a half. And um, yeah, I went over to work at a camp in New Jersey called Elks Camp Moor and that changed the direction of my life. In the obviously in, in the US. In the US. And uh because I met like it was the camp that the other camps for special needs would say, no, you you can't come to our camp, go to Elks Camp Moor. Your needs are too severe. They had full time nurses there the whole time and, and we, you know, were the, the counselors or whatever you want to call it. And uh we it was crazy. We would party sleep for two, three hours a night and then look after these kids. It was so stupid. But I remember there was this one kid, like um, we were all, we were all like all the counselors would sleep. I think about 10 of us in a bunkie or whatever. Or, and there was this one young Chinese man that uh, he was about 19 or 20 or something or 21. I don't remember, but he would never come and party with us. But all he had was a, uh, a picture that I don't know if he drew or a kid drew, but it just said, Jesus loves you. And he put that on the back of his bed and he was the nicest guy. And uh, we remember we would ask him, like, come party with us. And he'd be like, no, no, I'm cool. Thanks, guys. But he was super nice and he was always alert and he was up in the morning early and we were all like, oh, dragging our butts out of bed. <laughs> and uh, and I remember, I hope, I, well, I know I'm going to see him one day in heaven and I'm going to be like, bro, you, just your statement there. Like there wasn't judgment, there was just love, and I just I couldn't I didn't have a mechanism to understand it, and also the parents the parents we would be very tired at the end of the week, and we would, you know, as the parents would come pick the children up, we would be like, we're so glad that we get a weekend off or a day off. But the parents were so full of love and they would say, can we pray for you? Thank you for looking after our kids. And, you know, Jesus loves you and stuff like that. And we were just like hung over and okay, like, wow. But it did make an impression on me. It obviously did because I remember it now. But so I had these glimpses of true believers or followers of Jesus that had real faith in spite of incredibly difficult circumstances that made an impression on me. So was this before or like how old were you? 21? 22, 23, 24. Like I went back there three years. So is this after your studies? No, my studies involved, um, I went uh, after school, I went to study um, human resource management at WITS. WITS um, is a university, technical university in in Johannesburg. And um, 
But you uh, studied theology in Pretoria? Yeah, no, yeah, that was much later. Oh, so, much later. Okay, yeah. okay. So I, I studied human resource management because in high school I had no clue what I wanted to do. And so you go and do these tests and then they're like, oh, you should study human resource management. I'm like, I don't even know what that is. But, you know, so <laughs> yeah. like, well, okay. but the test says so, you should do it. Yeah, I did. So I went for two years, wasted my poor parents' money, um, didn't enjoy it, um, hated it, in fact, and realized, no, I'm not. this is not what I'm going to do with my life. Went back. By that time, my mom and dad were kind of back together. Uh, they were living in Pretoria anyway, and I'd been studying in Joburg. So I went back to Pretoria, and I stayed with them, got a job in the catering industry, worked at a Mexican bar and everything that goes along with that. And um, and that's when, um, yeah, that's when I sort of inherited a little bit of money when I turned 21, just enough to get like a plane ticket over to England and have some spending money while I looked for a job. And that was that. So, but when I came back, yeah, well, I mean, if you, I don't know if you want me to tell you about the journey. And well, happened. like, so, so what, uh, well, I, first of all, I find it fascinating how you find a camp in New Jersey when you live in South Africa. That's kind of interesting. Well, I was in England at the time. Okay. And I worked at a bar and the, and the owner of that bar, uh, well, pub. He had worked to this camp when he was younger and he kept on telling us about it. And I was like, oh, it sounded amazing. And I wanted to go Just something. I just like, I knew I had to go. Yeah. And that's how I ended up there. So what take us to, so you must've had uh, cause you mentioned that you felt empty. Mm. So take us to the point of where that emptiness came to a head where something shifted for you. It was actually in London and it was raining I remember the night because I was walking around on the streets looking for someone that resembled a priest or an imam or a rabbi or anyone with a clerical look about them because I wanted to, I could almost see myself grabbing their robes and being, saying, is this stuff true? So God was doing things in my life because I was partying, I was having a good time, I was having lots of laughs and on outwardly it looked like there was joy or at least happiness. But um, there wasn't. It was an emptiness. And so after um, my second year at, um, at the camp, I, there was an option to actually stay in England. And I got the papers like to say, yes, I could stay. And um, I was working with a young man. I was a carer, one of two carers for a young man that had contracted meningitis as a baby. And there was a lawsuit and everything. So he's, you know, I was one of the care team for him. And, um, and they really wanted me to stay, uh, the family. And, but I just felt that I had to go back to South Africa. And I remember getting back to South Africa. My mom picked me up from the airport and in all my wisdom, I just said, mom, you know, I'm quite upset with you about the stuff you taught us as kids about Christianity, because I've lived in the world now. And I know that there's lots of ways to get to God. You know, I just knew everything at the ripe old age of 24. And I remember my mom that's on the steering wheel. It kind of, she just almost like, like had a nervous twitch and she, but she didn't, she just said, okay, that's fine. You want to come with me to church? And I was like, yeah, sure. I'll come with you to church. And then for the first time in my life, I met young adults who believed in Jesus. I did not know any. 
And uh, and in all their wisdom, they heard that I'd worked at a summer camp with kids, and they was like, "You should come help us with a children's ministry." <laughs> and so, me helping with children's ministry, still partying on the weekends, but less and less because I'm going to church as well. And and then one night, I heard the gospel preached at church. I'm sure I'd heard it before many times, but I. I heard it in a way that I was like, oh, okay, I've got some talking to do with God. And so I went to my apartment and I was in the room that night and I said, God, you know I believe that Jesus existed, uh, but I don't love him and I know that that's a problem. I know that the Bible is your word, but I don't understand it and I don't even like it. I don't want to read it. It doesn't make me feel good. If you can change those two things in my heart... I will serve you for the rest of my life. That was my prayer and kind of forgot about it. And then God just started changing. I didn't want to smoke anymore. Definitely didn't want to smoke weed anymore. Um, And just, yeah, I just started changing and then started reading the Bible and I started understanding what I was reading. And it was only, I think, a couple of months later that I, I understood that that it was my sin and our sin that had caused Jesus that, that he wanted to go to the cross because we, there was a blood atonement that needed to be paid. And that was when I broke down and repented of everything. So when was I saved when I first prayed? I don't even know. I just know that like I, when I repented, I was freed and uh, yeah, it was wonderful. And that was the beginning of a journey. And so I said, I'm going to serve you. And I'd also said to the Lord that um, I wasn't going to date anymore, you know, until I found the woman that I wanted to marry, and, and yeah, a few months later, or maybe a year later, uh, and, and so this is all after you said to the to the Holy Spirit or to God to leave you alone. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, uh, in twenty twenty, I believe it was, or twenty twenty one, I think it was. Yeah, um, my wife and I were in England, and we were in the high streets, and she wanted to do shopping, and I said, "Hey, would you just you go shopping? I just I have something to do." And I walked all the way down from Piccadilly Circus into Mayfair and I went and stood on that same corner that I'd said to God, leave me alone. And I just, I didn't weep, but I was like, thank you. Thank you for, for, for taking your hands off me and going, okay, but never leaving me. Like yeah. you protected me. There were so many dangerous, possible dangerous situations I could have got into in London. There's, Cause there's a dark scene there. And he protected me, steered me away, even though I wanted to go in, he would steer me away from me. I didn't know it was him at the time, but he really was protecting me. I had a mother that was praying for me diligently every day. And I, um, so I got to go to that same place and say thank you for saving me. Thank you for redeeming me and thank you for letting me serve you. Yeah. It was, it was special. So just the process of recognizing these things, leaving, not maybe leaving you is not the right word, but but you just said like uh, the desire to not smoke and do different things, like just so the recognition of that leaving you made you more realize how real he is. Hey, Oh man. Uh, I wish I could even explain it in a better way. He actually started changing my heart and my desires, things that I would find attractive in the world, you know, just became like, they just left. And I did not find them attractive anymore. And I would still try and do some of them. And then I'd just be like, no, what am I doing? I, I don't like this. Yeah. And I was like, oh, something's changing inside of me. It yeah. was, yeah, it was, 
just, yeah, I didn't really know how to process it. I didn't, as I said at the time, I didn't know any Christians except this bunch of young adults that I'd never met young adult Christians before. And they were really awesome people. In fact, I'm still friends with them today. Those, that group of people that I, I met there, most of them. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Cause I was just having a conversation with a super good dude named Jim who, uh, we were, we were just talking about, you know, there isn't necessarily a pinnacle bang moment for everybody, right? Some people, for me, it was, it was like a light switch, but for others, it's like that. You just recognized something's happening, something's changing and you're just recognizing it. So it's, it's really interesting how God works differently in people, people, right? Yeah. But with the end result of knowing that he's real and starting relationship and all that. Yeah. So you talked about your, your wife. So was your wife from South Africa as well? Yeah. So she was from South Africa. I, I met her at, well, I didn't meet her. I turned around at church one time and I saw the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen in my life. Her hand was up in the air in worship. Her eyes were closed and she was sitting with next to this really handsome man with a really full beard. And I was like, oh, I was both happy and sad because I, I, I was happy because I'd seen the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen in my life. Just, she was, I don't know, she was radiant. And, um, but I was sad because I knew I would get married one day and I felt bad that my wife, that I would always have this other girl in my mind as a memory even though I was married and I knew I would love my wife or whatever, but I just remember there would be this girl. And, um, as it turns out, you know, she kept on coming to church and then all of a sudden the guy wasn't with her anymore. And so by that time I was leading the young adults in church, I'd already started, um, studying online and, uh, I ran out after she, she, I found out she was in med school and she was, she would always leave straight afterwards to go home and study or something. I don't know. But uh, she left church, it was one Sunday night, and I went out after her and I went, hey, the young adults are going out for some coffee, you want to come? And surprisingly, she said yes. And so I was like, oh, okay. And uh, she came for coffee and then... You were expecting a no? I do. She's so (laughs) out of my league, man. All my friends still say that. And um, I hope she doesn't listen to this podcast. But uh, yeah, she... um, we then friends of ours were getting engaged and I was hoping she would be at that engagement party. And I didn't know at the time, but she was hoping I would be there. And we uh, met over a bowl of butternut soup. And I told her about this pony trekking trip. I was organizing to go to Lesotho for the young adult, which is a mountain kingdom within South Southern Africa. And um, she sounded interested and we spoke most of the night. And then um, the next day I said to my friend, I think she may like me. And he was like, nah, man, forget it. Like, there's no way. And I was like, no, I think she actually may be interested. And uh, we went out on a date not too long after that. And I I told her what I told the Lord, that I wasn't interested in dating anyone unless I was pursuing someone that I wanted to marry. And so I said to her, my intention is to marry you And on our first date. And uh, that night she went home and told her dad she met the guy she's going to marry. So You said that on your first date? On my first date, bro. I was <laughs> down, man. And uh, like, well, I just I just believed that God had brought it into my life and I knew yeah. that I would never meet someone that was, I don't know, just more beautiful, more accomplished, more, I don't know, she was everything I could imagine. Awesome. Yeah. So, so what brought you guys, what brought you guys to Canada? Or like so when you wh- go to seminary. So after that, we moved to Cape Town. Like she graduated and she got a, like an 
intern at Cape Town or something in Cape Town at Hrutiski Hospital, which was not an internship, but you have to do like once you graduate, you've got to do a couple of years of something or other, you know, working as a doctor. And uh, she went, and so we went to Cape Town and I went into full-time seminary at the Cape Town Baptist Seminary there. But um, it was through the University of Pretoria. So I was doing uh, both a licentiate in theology and a bachelor's in theology. So it's similar to a master's like, yeah. And I um, I got a job once I graduated at a, well, they, they teach you how to be a pastor in seminary, even though I'd said like, God, I want to serve you in what you want to do. I want like lost people because all my friends, the people that I loved were far from God. So I wanted to do something or learn something that would help me reach lost people. That was it. But in seminary, they teach you how to be a pastor and I um, And so I got offered a really good job at this amazing church, Durbanville Baptist Church in the northern suburbs of Cape Town for afterwards. But my, I'm, I'm still glad that I did that and I'm glad we went. But I remember I made that decision without just telling my wife. I just told her, look, I've taken this job. And she was like, hmm. Anyway, when my son was born, so I worked there for a few years. And when my son was born, I remember looking at him thinking, when he grows up, who's he, who's his dad going to be? And it was kind of weird to say that, but that's like, I was like, is he going to grow up seeing a pastor as a dad or something else? And it wasn't a pastor. Like, so I was like, oh, what is it? And, and my wife had also, like we were, there was some tension because she was working all week and I was working all weekends and, and things like that as a, as a pastor. And um, I remember there was just tension. And I, I remember saying to her, why can't you just, you know, be happy about my ministry. And she was like, well, you were never going to be a pastor. You wanted to be someone involved in missions, giving like letting lost people know about Jesus. And I was like, well, I'm kind of, am doing that, but you know, I wasn't, I was a pastor to young rich kids. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I hope they never listen. But, um, and then, so I started praying and said, God, what is it you want me to be? And I spoke to my pastor and he gave me the best, advice anyone's ever given me he said well sean of god is obviously doing something in your heart so dream as if money is no object and i did and i dreamt up this business plan or this perfect job for sean and it involved ministry to lost people it involved families it involved christian education training learning discipling it involved adventure and all things like that but and and I sort of had this plan and I showed it to my wife and she said, oh, that's you. And I'm like, okay, well, that job doesn't exist. And I showed it to our small group and they also said, yeah, that, that whatever you've written here, that's you. And I was like, okay, that job doesn't exist. So that's when we started thinking maybe I would get some extra education, maybe an experiential education. I could combine the degrees and, you know, figure out something. And even in my church in South Africa, I shared this with them and and some people were very interested. We were thinking of buying a plot of land and starting this thing. But um, uh, one night I was in church and um, we had thought that we would either go to England. We had actually got plans to go to England or maybe Australia and that. And God just shut those doors very clearly. So one night I was in church and this is going to sound for a Baptist boy who didn't really know about Holy Spirit stuff that much, even though I'd been through seminary. The words Canada came down in front of my vision in red and in bold. Mm. And I was like, that's weird. That's never happened before. Didn't think too much of it. Went home. And as I walked through the front door, my wife is on the phone 
with a friend of hers, a doctor who had just come back from Canada. She spent a few years working here. And my wife turned to me and she said, what about Canada? And I was like, okay, that's interesting. Then I told her what had just happened. And we both looked at each other and said, we probably need to pray and fast because maybe God is trying to tell us something. And, um, and we did. And he opened the doors. Um, well, she, uh, she got a call from this guy in Saskatchewan, uh, in Prince Albert. And, his first question to her was, what does your husband do? And so she tried to explain this job that doesn't exist, that her husband made up. And uh, he didn't even bat an eyelid. He was like, oh, um, my wife goes to a Baptist church in Prince Albert. They've got a camp associated with that church. I think your husband would be interested. And they carried wow. on with the interview. And uh, she got that job offer, but he got the pastor to give me a call. And a few days later, he gave me a call. And it was as if God united our hearts. I told him what I was wanting to do. He told me what was needed. And I felt that was good training ground or preparation for for what I'm doing now and for what we're trying to venture into now. Because that was kind of the picture that I'd seen in South Africa, but it wasn't the full picture. Yeah. And I believe now what we're venturing into is actually something that God had put on my heart very, very strongly you know, back what, then. In the beginning, yeah. So your wife got a job as a physician or in medical? Sure, she's a psychiatrist and she got a job in, in psychiatry and yeah, over the last 10 years, she's ended up being the area lead for psychiatry for Northern Saskatchewan. And wow. And that's, a, yeah, she's very smart. Okay, so you, you, uh, you got into that camp. So tell us... Um, briefly how you got involved in e3 and i only say briefly because i know because we've hung out some of the insanely wild experiences (laughs) that you have that you've had like one that you shared when we were out in sask a few months back so uh just briefly tell us how you got involved with e3 being in prince albert dorton and i were office mates i was the camp director and he was the pastor uh, the associate pastor at the church he was only there for about two years we kept we became very close and then he left to for ontario and started e3 and um so we kept in touch and then i just started hearing stories and then and seeing things and he invited me on a couple on some trips Uh, well he actually invited me to a few trainings and i finally went to one and um that's when i I believe curtis was there um but some of the big hitters from e3 usa were there and i did my first four field intensive training i hardly remembered anything from that but i walked out of that knowing that I could never unsee or unlearn what I'd learned and that the trajectory of my life again was changed, but this was the final trajectory. There was no other thing for me or, you know, for believers than reaching lost people, than fulfilling the great commission of Jesus, than for making disciples, people who follow Jesus and who know how to train others to follow Jesus. I didn't know any of the tools. It was the first time I ever saw them but I knew that this was something I was going to do for the rest of my life. And so when I left the camp, I worked in finance for a couple of years and I thought, well, I'll be like Paul, I'll be a tent maker and just, um, you know, raise my own support. And, you know, and Jeremy kept on saying, Sean, I think you should be part of this team. And I was like, nah, man, my family circumstances are different. Everything's different. I'll, 
I'll learn to lead trips and I'll lead trips and I'm like, I'm an E3 evangelist. Like I love it, you know, but, um, but I, I don't think. And then, uh, again, this holy discontent started turning. I said to the Lord, well, Lord, if, if I'm to do this on my, if I'm to go full time into this and leave finance and then can you give me, when, when the time is right, can you give me someone who will be a large sort of starter donor that, that I know, okay, the time is right. Like I said, I think of the words, um, I need someone will be a like substantial supporter. I think I used those words to God. And then the very next day I was meeting with a friend of mine who owns a Chick-fil-A down in Paducah, Kentucky. He comes up and we hunt together and stuff. And, uh, we were talking about work and I was showing him pictures from my trips and everything. And then I just sort of put my phone down. I was like, see, this is my problem. He goes, what? He said, I'm really excited about the one part of my life and not excited about the other part of my life at all. I'm thinking of going into full-time ministry with E3. And he said, without blinking, Sean, if you do go, I'll be a supporter of yours. In fact, I'll be a substantial supporter. He said the exact words that I prayed the day before. And then I told him, I said, let me tell you what's just happened right now. Like, now's the day. I went home from that meeting. And we were crying. Like, we were, we were in a smitties in PA, and we were both crying. We were just like, this is amazing. And uh, I went home, and I phoned my boss in Toronto, and I said, thank you for everything that you've done. But I feel that God is saying to me that now is the time. And his response to me was, Sean, as I said, I'm, I hope you're not disappointed. And his response was, Sean, I would only be disappointed if you didn't do what God is calling you to do. He's a wonderful Christian man. Yeah. A financial operation in Toronto doing very well for himself. And yeah. Yeah. So that's how I got into E3 full time. So you started with that. So um, what was your first, what was your first excursion? With E3, like, or I guess you must have done some I'd things done before. Some, and I'd gone to the Philippines and um, I had never been filled with the Holy Spirit when I went there. And there was a, a man on the team that asked me if I spoke in tongues or had been filled with the Spirit. And I was like, well, I'm a Christian. Of course, I have the Spirit of God with me. He goes, no, I mean, filled with the Spirit. Like, Do you speak in tongues? And I was like, no, 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 I don't. You know, I've asked God for that and he hasn't given that to me. And he said, okay. And, um, but what God was doing was, cause I'd been told, okay. So I'd been told that like the book of Acts and the things that happened there was like, that was, that was just to get the gospel out. Although the logical conclusion is that the gospel hasn't fully gone out. So those things could slap. But anyway, you know, it was, um, so I, uh, miracles didn't believe in them. Like maybe they might happen to other people, but you know, speaking in tongues, wow, it's those crazy charismatics and you know, all the rest of it, like people getting healed and, uh, you know, it's not for me. Maybe some people have a ministry of healing, all that kind of stuff. And then first night in the Philippines, I'm praying for a line of about a hundred people and I'm just commanding them to be healed. And I'm not really even believing it. Because I'm asking the translator, like, are these people actually getting healed? And she's like, yeah, 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 come on, like, don't ask questions. Let's just keep praying. Like, there's lots of people to get through. <laughs> and this one guy, um, he couldn't see. Like, he could barely see, but he couldn't, you know, everything was blurry. And um, and so I prayed for him, and he turned around and gave me the biggest smile, and I grabbed his arm, and I said, wait. I said, can you read that poster up in front there? And he read it to the translator, like through the translator, and he read it. And she looked at me and she said, Sean, yes, he's healed. Can you hurry up, please? And so my mind was blown because God used me at, for, to heal someone. Like I couldn't, I, I couldn't even, I didn't even have a theology that really made sense of it. 
so yeah. you're in the Philippines <laughs> praying for people. You don't really believe Bro, I know how it sounds. It's that terrible. The, that that yeah. healing even exists. Yeah. And the translator Not says, me anyway. don't yeah. ask questions. Yeah. Just keep praying. <laughs> That's the best. Oh, it was, it was crazy. Well, then something even crazier happened on the next trip. I had to go to um, a place and it was about, I don't know, about an hour away from the rest of the group. We were all spread out. And I was the only guy with a translator that could barely speak English, but he could understand English, so he could translate into Tagalog. And then as I got there, there's a grandmother holding this four-year-old girl, say, um, and she's just limp. She looks unconscious. And I went and felt her, and her skin was just dry, and she had this fever. And I said, what's going on? And she said, well, this child has had a fever for five days, and she hasn't been able to eat, and she's hardly drinking anything. The dad wants her to go to hospital. We don't have money. And also, God gave me a dream last night that the preacher was going to come and pray for her and she was going to be healed. And my heart like almost stopped because I was so terrified because I was the preacher. That means that God knew that, you know, like I was just, I just couldn't understand. So I preached the sermon and I remember they put her in a hammock at the back of the church. And all I could see was her little knee sort of bent and she didn't move. Like she just did not move. She was unconscious anyway. At the end of the service, they bring her forward. And I'm praying the very safe prayer. I'm like, God, you know this, you know, you know the situation. You know they don't have money. Please heal her and all that. And all that happened was she just opened her eyes. That's it. And the grandmother went, thank you, and went and sat down. And I said, God, let this woman's faith heal this child because I know I don't have the, the right faith. And then I felt Holy Spirit saying, like, you call that a prayer? Go and tell her to be well. Like, I was like, oh, okay. So I just went up to her and I said, can I pray for her one more time? And the lady said, yes. I said, little girl, in the name of Jesus, be well and may your appetite return. Because we were about to have lunch. I went and sat down. Um, that was it. I walked from there, sat down next to the pastor and his wife. And these two little hands come over the table and grab a piece of chicken and watermelon and giggle and run off. And then I look and it's this little girl and I turn to the pastor and I'm like, is that that little girl? Is like, is she well? And he's like, yeah, man. Yeah, let's eat. Like for him, it was like no big deal. Of course she's healed. You prayed for her. For me, my mind was blown, absolutely blown that God had given this woman a dream that she had listened, that he spoke to me and he said, go and heal her and that she was healed. So actually, I have videos and photos of this as well, which is the most amazing thing. Because I said, I have doctor friends at home who are not going to believe me. Yeah. I told this one story to a, a physician friend of mine that works. He was the head of the emergency room there. And he said, Sean, I know what needs to happen in a body that's got a fever. Like, I know what needs to happen for that to come down. It just, that doesn't happen. And I said, well, I don't know what needs to happen, but I know what I saw. Like, And no, so he said, if it wasn't you, I wouldn't believe it. I'm like, ah, bro. I know. I, I was there. I hardly believe it. Yeah. So God was taking me on this on this thing. Like there is power in Jesus' name and there is power in operating with the Spirit of God, doing what He wants. Like there is power for that. I didn't know that. It was all head knowledge, man. So, yeah. So it was really, it's a cool journey I've been on. I'm so excited. Oh, man, that's awesome. That's awesome. Can, can you share the story? So for context, friends, um, with Disciple of City, we've been out in, in uh, Saskatchewan and Saskatoon over the last six months yeah. in preparation for Come Together, which has now happened. Yes. Um, and so uh, I think it was 
May that I was out there right. for a pre-event. Anyways, we, we had lunch together and uh, with Dale. And, yes. And yes. his Dale bride. And his lovely wife. Yeah. yeah. Who are awesome. Oh, they bought us lunch in this very nice restaurant as well. Yeah. Mm. They're so cool. Um, but you shared a story and it was like probably the most craziest ministry story I've heard of, and I don't know if you want to mention the name of the country that you snuck oh, into. Okay, sure. <laughs> you want me to tell that story? I would, yeah, I would really love you to share that story. And like I said, I don't know if you can mention well, certain things or whatever. But well, I won't mention the names of the countries, um, but people that know might be able to figure it out. Uh, we went into a country; it's in Southeast Asia somewhere, and um, one of the neighboring countries uh, are at war with their own people. They are exterminating their own people. Uh, I'm not even exaggerating. Um, the We were there on a Sunday and the Wednesday before this massive Buddhist temple, and I mean massive, massive, had just been strafe bombed, like shot with first strafed with like 50 mil stuff. We could see the stuff going through these huge, like the, where the bullets went through, these 50 caliber bullets went through, and then, then it was bombed. Um, and like the, the clothes of the monks were still piled high as they tried to wanted to escape and get out of there. Um, so the countries of war, um, we, a few years ago, uh, with our partners in CMC, which is the church multiplication coalition had been trying to get some of the young people out into the, the neighboring country to help get them away from being pulled into army and becoming child soldiers and all the rest of it. And this one general found out about what we were doing or what they were doing. I wasn't there at the time. And uh, he was like, oh, can you guys um, get us guns? And we're like, they were like, no, we're actually a Christian organization. We're actually here to rescue people. And he's like, oh, uh, people in my village need rescuing. Um, and anyway, so they got to know each other and um, they proposed uh, getting a water project done for the village. There's about 250 families in the village. And uh, so I, that's when I got involved and we raised money, had some wonderful folks that really believed in this cause because this village leader said, you know, we only have running water six months of the year. Um, the rest of the time we've got to, you know, we've got to wait for rain and that kind of stuff, but it doesn't really rain much. And so if we could have water, um, you could tell us anything you want. Like you can come to our village. We will open the door for you if you give us water. And I just the images of, of living water and having that and being able to give that. And anyway, since that time, this, this leader has become a born again believer. His church, there's a church that is in his village now, even uh -huh. though in the village there's these massive Buddhist statues and things like that. So I, I wanted to go into this country, but it was very dangerous and um, so I promised my family that I would not go in unless the general said it was safe and I could go. Um, and so we went there and I was doing training on the border with some of the refugees that had come out that would eventually go back. I was training them on church planting and multiplication and discipleship and that sort of thing. And um, one day we got a text or the, the one evening, it's like, be ready at seven o'clock tomorrow morning, dress like full, like be unrecognizable as a white you know, American looking person. And it was me and another guy um, that was from the US, from Florida, and we were all dressed up. So the next morning, and so they were planning this entry into this country on how we were going to get smuggled in. Um, we we did. I'm not going to say how, 
But at one point, um, the the driver, so we're sitting in the back of the truck in the back seats and the driver starts rolling down the windows, which means there's a checkpoint coming and they're going to look in. And he just says, put your heads down, get down. So we got down and like, I'm thinking you can hear the guys with guns next to the vehicle. And I'm just praying, Lord, just blind their eyes. Like we're, we're two six foot guys. They're going to see us, but we prayed, don't let them see us. And so they didn't see us. And he started driving off windows coming up. And we were like, what, what was that? He's just like, yeah, checkpoint. And I said, they didn't see us. He goes, nope. <laughs> and so we get to the, the village and, um, we have armed guards with us the whole time. I think you showed you some of the photos. And um, these guys are 16, 17-year-olds that are willing to protect their families from the actual, their own government, who wants to exterminate them. And the government has airplanes, snipers in the hills. We could hear on the mountains not far, like fighting, because there's so many different factions that are fighting. And then at one point at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, the village leader says, you've got to get in the house. You can't come back outside. And we stayed there for about four hours. And eventually even the translators are getting bored, kind of talking to us, keeping us entertained or whatever. And so the village leader comes in and he says, um, when are you flying out? And I said, well, my friends, well, my friends flying out tomorrow and, uh, I'm flying out a day after. He's like, we need you to stay in the jungle tonight because they don't even sleep in the village. They sleep, the, the women and children are, are in caves four hours walk away in the jungle. That's oh. where they're living. And so our team was providing them with rice and things like that. But they're eating, they're catching like big snakes or rodents, whatever they can to eat. And the men are like a two hour walk away on, so that if anyone comes, they can fight, you know. And um, we just said, look, we, we don't know. Like, can you not get us out? And he's like, yeah, it's not looking good for us to get you out tonight again. But we were praying and uh, all of a sudden something happened on his radio. He's got this military radio and comes on and then he's like, we go now. And so all of us just like some of the guys are jumping on motorbikes. We jumped in the back of his truck, the village leader's truck. And uh, he got us to this um, area on the border. And then he was like, stay in the car, stay in the car. And we were waiting there and we could see where we wanted to be was like meters away and we couldn't get there wow. and then after a while it was like in a movie man like there's this gate slides up and in the wall we get on this little corridor a truck backs into another house with the metal gates open we pushed into the back of the truck <laughs> doors closed and we ride out and we were just like we're free we're home and it's like i made some videos going like hey just if you get this just know that i love you kind of stuff <laughs> Wow, my my son was very angry when I told him the story when I came home. He was like, I, "But I said, I said, pray for me because the area we're going to is dangerous." He's like, "Well, I didn't know it was that dangerous." I'm like, well, <laughs> mm. yeah. you know? Have you been in contact with with anyone from there since? Yeah, man. didn't know how people, they're doing. Yeah, people are being killed. The sister of our the 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 wife, the pastor and his wife were um, the the sister of the pastor's wife. She was one of our translators wonderful beautiful woman uh, her sister was killed and uh, yeah just lots of lots of bad things going on still going on um are they the people that you trained up there are there people coming to faith there are people getting out or to safety yeah so the people that we trained were in um were in the other country so they were kind of safe but they're in refugee camps and they're basically like in prison so one of the places is an old abandoned, not abandoned, but a factory, and they're living there. They're living in the factory, sleeping on mats, That's, and they can't leave. They can't go shopping. They, 
dependent on our partners there for help. Um, and the people in the village, um, the village, fortunately, the water, the water project that we did is still going and providing water. And so the men are walking two hours, tending their crops and things, and then going back at night. But yeah, it's still pretty dire. Wow. So what's, uh, what, what, well, you kind of talked about it at the beginning of the show, but what's next for you now when you go back to Sask? Or, or are you, is your focus now more here in Canada or is it a little of both? You're doing some stuff in Canada. Are you going? That's uh, a good question. So usually I would do about three or four trips a year overseas, but my focus, I'm thinking for the next year, year and a half, there might be one or two trips per year. But the trips are going to be to places that have never heard the gospel. And I'm in some conversations and building partnerships with places in the world where there are locals on the ground that could help. So we would, what we'll do, our strategy is go and train people on the ground that are familiar with language and culture and all that kind of stuff that, that understand the idea of no place left, of reaching the last of the lost and, and training them and working with them and going with them where possible uh, to those places. So I'll be doing that, but my focus is really going to be building up and, and helping build up this initiative of E3 called Voice in the Wilderness. We believe that the time is here where there is a movement of John the Baptist. If, you know, in, in Isaiah 40, it's, um, you know, it says, Isaiah the prophet, speaking of John the Baptist, says there is a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And we believe that there is a movement of John the Baptist's type people that are being built up that are maybe a little bit odd in some places or some instances, but are, are, are saying to the world, prepare the way for the second coming of the Lord. It is not, it's not far, it's not long off. It, we can at least fulfill the Great Commission in our lifetime, and we will. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Uh, anything, anything not booked, but any specific place in the near future that you have lined up right now or not just yet? Uh, we're there's two uh, possible places for a trip in October. Um, one is sort of Cambodia, Thailand area. We've got some great work that's going on there, and we're seeing some incredible fruit. Um, we, you know, I was there in November last year in Cambodia, and uh, we went to places that pre-COVID had been trained and stuff. And then when we went back, we just seen how multiplication had happened second, third generation churches already being planted in people's homes and people using the tools and making disciples who are making disciples is incredible. But another place there is um, in Mauritius and Reunion Island, there is a lot of people from Southern Africa moving there. God is calling them to move there and they don't really know why. They're just like, we feel we have to plant churches, but they don't know how. Like, I mean, they, they've got a model, but it's very expensive. You've got to get a pastor building and all that kind of stuff. And we're like, oh no, we've got zero budget church planting stuff. Like, so I'm training some, I'm in conversations with some of the leadership of some of these places. And um, so we might do a trip to Mauritius because there's an actually an unreached, unengaged people group there. The deaf in, yeah, it's actually, so the, a lot of the deaf have just been left out. And so there's, um, there's a, a few cultures there that have deaf speaking, well, deaf, deaf speaking people, deaf people that have never heard about the name Jesus. 
Yeah. Nothing in their language, nothing to know. So, Have you taken your son anywhere? I've not yet taken my son anywhere. He has, um, he's been invited, but some of the places I go to, my wife would not let me take my son. But also he's been very involved in, in school and academics and sports. And he just got his black belt in Taekwondo a little while ago and, you know, busy winnings and like Saskatchewan championship stuff. And oh, yeah. Like that. So, you know, wow, if he's a black belt, he's good to go. Uh, that's what I think. Yeah, he's currently in the opposite side of the country. He's in Kelowna on a, on a mission, sort of. Oh, right. Serving the people of Kelowna there. So, oh, that's great. awesome. My daughter is the one who, she's eleven, but she just wants to come. She's just like, yeah, I'll go, yeah. go anywhere, anytime. Let's go. So I'm like, oh, let's wait until you're about thirteen or fourteen, maybe. Yeah. So when Genoa went when she was, I think, twelve, Jeremy's daughter, she went to the Philippines with him. I remember yeah. her being very young, and and she was great. Yeah. Made a big impact on it. Well, just maybe somewhere where you don't have to hide in a truck <laughs> from checkpoints, somewhere without checkpoints. Believe me, if you knew my wife, you would know. She would never allow her to go to a place like that. Yeah. yeah. So somewhere a little bit tamer. Yeah. We were welcomed with open arms. Yeah. Well, Sean, thanks for stopping by and sharing your story. Oh, man. Thanks so much for having me. It was super fun. And it's just nice to reflect on it and actually be reminded about some of the things that God has done and have, have, that I haven't thought about for a while. So thank you. Well, and it's very, um, it's very trusting and faith to go to extreme places like that and trust that the Lord has a reason for you to be there is trying to reach people and at the same time will protect you and bring you back to your family. Amen. I believe it. Mm. So, um, Sean, I just had one more question for you. Um, you talked about the neighboring country. So you went into the country that was really super hectic, but the neighboring country where there were refugees and they're in a, they're in that factory or they're, and they're kind of stuck there, right. For, for a while, if you connect as you share the Lord with those people and somebody really connects and as you're leaving, what, what would you say to somebody to help keep their faith as you're leaving to freedom and they're still stuck there? Yeah, that's a good question. Fortunately, and I thank God that we worked with partners that are there all the time that are continuing the ministry. Some amazing young people, and I'm thinking third, fourth year med students, um, people that worked as like in ambulances, you know, that kind of stuff that, um, that have given that up to help serve these refugees. So there is a team of people that have stayed that are helping and continuing with the work. So I've not had to leave them with nothing. That's not had to happen. And I can't imagine, we don't go to places where we're the only people. We always partner with locals on the ground who are doing the work already. And we just want to come alongside them, help them, give them some extra tools and that kind of thing. So does that answer your question? Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Well, okay. So I'm just looking for like, how would you, cause I've not been to anywhere that, um, hectic, right? So I'm, I'm just, I'm just wondering what, what have you said to, for the people who are on the ground, who are going to continue to help those people and you've gone and you've shared these tools and stuff, what would you what well, if what message, if you really what mm. if you really connected with somebody yeah. like the way we connected in yeah. your truck yeah. in Sask yeah. Yeah. right and but you're but in so somebody who's 
their boots on the ground there. Right. They're staying there, but they really connected with you and you're leaving. And mm. you know, those moments where they don't know if they're really actually going to see you again. What would you say to them just to encourage them in the Lord of how of God is with them? I would say, and I think I did say this to the, in the village, um, I had the opportunity to address a lot of the workers, many who were of a different faith. I said, if you are thirsty and you can come to Jesus and he will give, he will put in you living water that will flow out of you for others and to just rely on the living water that God gives to you to replenish even those who are thirsty. That's it. Awesome. Thanks, man. Yeah. And thanks for doing that, for for just going to the unreached. There's so many things in ministry to do. So thank you for being obedient and doing things that are very brave and bold and trusting in the Lord. Thanks, man. Thank you. I'm so grateful for my family that lets me go. Yeah. Bless you, brother. And you, bro. The Great Commission, friends, there's there's so much, so much to do and so many different roles from families that support the ministry to Christians and other people that support the people that are going uh, on these trips for prayer warriors everybody has a role in this you don't have to be the one laying in the back of a truck at a checkpoint asking God to hide you but you can definitely support these people in prayer financially whatever the Lord is stirring you to Double digits, double digits left to hear the gospel. We will see it. I stand in agreement with you, Sean. We will see that in our lifetime. In Jesus' name.